0: I don't know if you guys realize this, but one of the reasons that God created us was actually to image him. Now that's, I think, kind of a big idea to swallow on a Sunday morning. You were made to image the infinite God, to actually display his character. Uh, So no big deal, right? But um, as we think about that, I think that it means that we need to be thinking about the nature of what that looks like. And if we're supposed to look like God, then I think that what that means is that we're all supposed to have long noses right? Some of you are like, amen, Um, fully imaging God. But my problem is, I think I have a short nose. And uh, as you're looking at me, you might say he must not be talking about anything physical. But uh, what we're actually talking about this morning is uh, the kind of idea that we get from Exodus 34.6, where amongst other things, God is being described. And one of the terms that you'll find in Exodus 34.6 about God is that he is slow to anger. That's what a lot of translations say. The word behind that is actually uh, a God is long of nose, which is just a Hebrew expression that speaks of his patience. He is patient with us. And as I think about that, I just have continuous reminders throughout the day, including this morning on my way to church, that I am not patient as I should be. I don't look like God as I ought to. And maybe you've struggled with. I mean, am I the only one here that struggles with patience? Is that just me? Okay, we've got a couple in the audience who are honest. We, we struggle with being patient. And so I'm wondering this morning if you have God's long nose, his patient nose, or do you have a short, impatient nose? See, i discover my nose is short when I pick up my kids from school on Fridays or when I'm in line at the In-N-Out, start to feel and sense that the, the world is just not moving fast enough for me. And you probably have even noticed that there are some other times that are more significant when you are suffering and you really begin to sense that you are struggling with patience. You're struggling with waiting on God. You're struggling with looking to God. You're struggling with trusting God's voice. I've experienced that. Have you noticed that? See, suffering not only makes us impatient with circumstances, but it can make us impatient with God and even ask some tough questions. Maybe you've asked some of these questions like, is God really for me? Has God really won the victory that he has told me that he has won? Because it doesn't feel like winning today. Is Jesus really able to save me? Or why does it feel like evil is winning right now? In fact, this morning, we're going to be back in our hopeful exile series in Peter in verses 3, 18 to 22 that we're just read. And as we're thinking through this text, what we're going to find is, is that there is also this sense sometimes in our suffering that we feel as though the powers of evil are actually, are actually victorious even over God and his plans and purposes for us. We begin to question those things. And what we're going to find here this morning is that Peter has an answer for that. Now, by way of refresher, the Apostle Peter, uh, he is writing to a mostly Gentile audience of churches in the Roman provinces of Asia Minor. That's uh, basically where modern-day Turkey is, and as they are being spoken to, they are simultaneously facing various and sporadic persecutions, ranging uh, from everything from social pressure to that occasional political crackdown, and faith in Christ has left them feeling like aliens in their own homes. Now, our section began, you'll remember, back in 1 Peter 3.8, where Peter was telling Christians that they need to bless even their enemies, so that when you are facing difficulty, even then, you need to bless and not curse. You'll notice though this morning, if you look at verse 18, that it begins with the word for in verse 18, and that tells us that Peter is actually coming on the heels of and grounding what he's about to talk about in 1 Peter 3, 13-17, that's what we covered last week, you'll remember there that uh, Peter has just told us that revering Christ in our hearts cures our fearing people. It's there that we, we begin to, to cure our fear for people. When we exalt Christ, set him apart as holy in our hearts, and that it's good to do good even when you suffer and it hurts because it's better than doing evil. But this morning what we're going to see, we're going to see that Peter actually models, I believe, how we are to set Christ apart as holy in our hearts to cure that not only fear of man, but fear of even demonic forces. So notice here that we are going to find in this an example of him reveling in the unparalleled glories of our victorious Christ, who reigns not just over human enemies, but the unseen spiritual Forces that stand against us. If we know that Jesus is victorious over Satan and his demons, then we can be sure that he'll give us confidence against human enemies. Right? I mean, if he can he can overcome, and he has authority over those great forces, then lesser forces that are against us, we can trust that we can have confidence. So our big idea this morning is this: it's that our victorious King Jesus gives us confidence to be patient before all evil. Our victorious King Jesus gives us confidence. To be patient before all evil. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Uh, We're going to begin in verse 18 where we're going to see that our victorious King Jesus came to bring us home to God the Father. Our victorious King Jesus came to bring us home to God the Father. Uh, But before we jump in, why don't we go ahead to the Lord in prayer and ask his help. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we come before you and Lord, we are needy. We are needy to hear from you. In fact, God, we need to hear from you more than we even know. And so, God, this morning, we just ask that you would come and that you would help us. Lord, that your spirit would awaken us, that those of us who are groggy from not enough sleep or those of us who are distracted by any host of distractions, God, that you would just dial us in right now and help us to focus on you and your goodness and your greatness. Father, that you would help us to love Jesus more in this time. Lord, that you would change and shape us. Lord, do this for the glory of your name we pray. Amen. So first, uh, we want to look at this victorious king who came to bring us home to God the Father. Uh, You'll notice this four again, it's grounding that experience of those Christians that are suffering in Asia Minor uh, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now the text clearly outlines what we call penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, Now let me just clarify, when I say penal, I'm, I'm talking about penalty, all right? And when I'm talking about substitutionary, I'm talking about substitution and then atonement we're going to get to. So I know that's a mouthful, but it's an important mouthful because it is the very heartbeat of the gospel. It is the very central of what it is that we believe has come and changed and shaped us and given us eternal life. And so we need to to know what this means and we need to understand it more and more. In fact, uh, this text, uh, we'll notice, also says that Jesus is our Christus Victor, Uh, which simply means that he is our victorious Christ. He is the one who has vanquished our enemies, who has brought us to the Father. He's done this by virtue of his sacrificial death, though. So, yes, he is the victorious Christ, one view of what Christ has done at the cross, but it is tied more significantly and centrally to how he did it, which was through this sacrificial death that we see here. See, this simply means that Jesus died a righteous, sacrificed, a sacrificial substitute on the cross for you and me to satisfy God's just, let me emphasize, just penalty of his eternal wrath towards the unrighteous. That's all. All have sinned and fallen short. He did this to atone for our sins to bring us into restored relationship with God. That's, that's basically what penal substitutionary atonement is. It's the gospel. Now, you see all of that here in verse 18. Uh, notice what he says again. So if you're looking, First Peter, 3 verse 18 here's what he says he says this for Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but alive in the spirit that's a good verse isn't it so what he's doing peter has been pastoring these churches through how to faithfully suffer and Christ, that spirit-anointed king from the Davidic line, suffered, he says, once for sins. Or better yet, I believe it would be better to say, once for all for sins. See, this is really similar to, to Hebrews 10, where the author of Hebrews is unpacking Jesus. And he's been talking about how Jesus actually satisfied that whole Jewish system of priests offering sacrifices day after day and year after year for the people of God and their sins against God. If they sinned, they needed to have an equal number of sacrifices to atone for the sins which they committed against God. You can just imagine how bloody that system was. And in Hebrews 10, 12 to 14, he makes this statement. He says, something's changed. He says this, he says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And when it says that Jesus offered a single sacrifice for sins and he sat down, uh, I often say that's the modern equivalent of Jesus saying, I dropped the mic, right? Like, it's done. Like, that was... That was it. That's how you do it. It's been done. You can't repeat it. That's exactly what Christ did when he was raised from the dead and sat and was ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. Now, I know that as we come to this, um, we have a lot of former Catholics here, maybe some who are still uh, engaged in Catholicism. And I just wanted to highlight here one important difference that evangelicals believe differently Uh, than Catholics, and that concerns communion. Like, we're going to be taking communion today, so really appropriate. Uh, They hold a view that's called transubstantiation. And and in that view, basically what they say is, is that the priest, they have a priest, not a pastor, and the priest is actually offering in communion, each time they take communion, a a sacrifice of Jesus Christ over and over again. In fact, it is is considered to be literal, turns into Christ, Whereas the the bread becomes the flesh, right, and then and then the the, the wine it becomes because they use wine it, it becomes what it becomes his blood, and so that when it comes into our mouths it's almost as though we are taking a fresh sacrifice of Jesus, and they do that again and again and again in their services. And this text is one of like Hebrews ten that I showed you of of a number of texts that really help us to see that this misunderstands the finality and totality of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross. I mean, can you just imagine what, what this would do to your soul? Thinking that every time that you sinned, that you needed to have Jesus to re-sacrifice himself for you, as though what he originally did did not actually accomplish what he claims he set out to do. I mean, do you just see the ceaseless hamster wheel type existence this is? where you have sinned and you are fearful that in some way that you no longer have the pleasure of God with you that you have lost it until Jesus Christ yet again sacrifices himself I mean what a view of religion that says that I need to constantly be working and I need to constantly be laboring so that I can earn God's favor rather than trusting that God has already earned it for you in the person of Jesus Christ this is a different kind of religion see Jesus offered on your behalf Himself, to bring you to God. I mean, not appreciating the once and for all nature of this sacrifice, I believe, misses the heartbeat of Christianity and the hope of the Christian. Christian. And to be honest with you, your sanity. Your sanity before a holy and righteous God. And you don't have to be a Catholic to miss the depths of that flood that comes from Calvary to your soul. The good that is brought to you in that. I mean, do you just see the ceaseless hamster wheel existence that is? Like, I would encourage you. You need to know what Jesus has done and accomplished on the cross. He has done enough to carry us all the way home to God. He didn't bring us halfway and then say, the rest of the half is yours. And Jesus comes and meets us in our sins and sorrows, not only to take up our burdens. He does that, but also to carry us all the way home to God. So don't be a hamster wheel Christian. Rest in the pleasure that God has for you as a Christian because of what Christ accomplished on your behalf at the cross. If you get nothing else this morning, get that. See, the uniqueness of Christ's suffering means that he's going to get you home with God through your sufferings. You're going to make it in Christ. But Peter and Hebrews highlight the unique suffering here of our righteous Christ for an unrighteous humanity. Jesus is the ultimate innocent Suffer the one greater than Job who came not only to suffer as a righteous one, but notice so that he says in verse 18 that he might bring us to God. See, Jesus came to bring an unrighteous people to the God of righteousness. The eternal Son of God willingly came to die to bring us to God. Now, that might not make as much sense without a little bit of Old Testament background, right? So, the Old Testament. Uh, you find that they had a temple. And in that temple, they actually had this one place called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. And in this place, we find that there was a veil through which they could go, one door. And it, was, it had these cherubim with flaming swords, which basically communicated, keep out, right? And, and one time a year, they would have one priest that would be allowed to go in and offer a sacrifice of atonement for the people of God. And that was the only time anyone got to go into this place. What's fascinating is this stood at the heartbeat or the very central of Israel. So just think about this. What's in the center of, of your, your, your city? Oh, it's a, a temple to our God, and we're not allowed in because he's there. So you center yourself around the house, the home of a God, who doesn't allow you to go into his presence except once for a year to make a sacrifice. I mean, doesn't that kind of communicate to you that we don't quite have the access to God that we want? That there is some kind of significant separation between us and God with that wall-like curtain that is keeping us from his presence? See, that veil screamed separation from God. But when Jesus died on the cross, Matthew 27, 51 tells us something amazing. That veil was torn. And where was it torn from? Not bottom to top. That's what men would do. It's from top to bottom is a significant picture of the reality that God himself tore that separating, dividing wall between himself and his people down. He did it himself. Why did he do it? Because of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. See, that tearing and that renting of the veil declared that the door To God's home was open for business again. His people were invited to come back in. And Jesus' resurrection confirms this. I think that's what that last phrase in our verse means here this morning being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, I wish we could spend more time on this verse, but um, just to clarify, uh, Tom Schreiner says this Christ was put to death. With reference to his body, we could spend a lot of time here, but with reference to his body, he was put to death in his physical body, and he was made alive by the Spirit. So the Spirit brought him uh, to life, and I would take that to speak of the resurrection, that he raised him from the dead. The Spirit did this. You might be asking yourself, okay, well, that's a lot of theology, but how does that really help suffering Christians? And maybe you're a suffering Christian that's asking that this morning. How does that help me? Well, it's easy to ask if any good can come from suffering. But I think that what this verse tries to do is really reorient them to the greatness of Jesus Christ. You you remember these Christians are feeling like, kind of like Kevin's parents in in Home Alone. Do you remember that, how bad they wanted to get back home? They're like, man, we got to get back home. And there's like no way to get there. And they're rushing and, and they're trying to get home. And they can't get home fast enough. And Peter says, your home is with God, and Jesus came to bring you home at the cost of his very life. But catch this, Peter's ultimate message here, he isn't here to call Christians to imitate Christ, but to exalt him. Do you get that? I mean, there are places where we're told, hey, this is a model for you for how to suffer, consider Jesus in his life. That's not what's going on here. That's not the big idea. I think the big idea here is, let's start exalting Christ for all that he is understanding his grand authority over all things and and what's happened in his resurrection and later ascension. And if you do that, I believe that it's going to quiet your fears. See, Jesus' unique sacrifice and resurrection, I believe, should give us confidence that he is going to get us home, that this is not all that there is, that the best is yet to come. Now, there's another thing, I think, that we can take away from this, and that is that no one else, can bring you to God. Never want to take this for granted, but no one else can bring you to God. I don't know if you've ever um, heard of a book I've mentioned before. Uh, it's, it's by a famed late author, uh, R.C. Sproul. <clears throat> and he wrote a book that was entitled with a question, right? Saved from what? Saved from what? And uh, I would say that like the short tweet version of a synopsis of this book is just this, that you are saved by God from God and I like to add to God that's I think a picture of what we've been saved from see only Jesus's unique suffering death in real time on a cross can save sinners like you and me and what that means is is that Gandhi, Muhammad, Joseph Smith those guys cannot lead you to God and take you into his presence Jesus's work was unique so your good deeds don't carry any value when it comes to access with God. If that's kind of what you're resting your life with, if you're taking confidence that maybe on that last day when you come before the throne room of God that just maybe I've been good enough to get in, the Bible says nobody's good enough. That, that answer doesn't work. Or uh, you can also maybe build you know, a thousand orphanages and, and still not earn access to God. Your, your parents' religion can't bring you to God. So maybe you have parents who are Christians and you think, well, because mom and dad are Christians, dad's a preacher, mom's a deacon, like, I guess I'm a Christian. I mean, I have to check some box, right? That doesn't bring you to God. That doesn't bring you the access to God that you desire. You know, even your religion itself can't bring you to God. Your your religious practices, like, they can't bring you to God. You know, the only one that can bring you to God It's okay. Jesus. Look, if I'm going to set it up, you guys got to swing. You know what I'm saying? It's church. Jesus. Like, (laughs) nobody's going to say, no, the answer is never, not Jesus. Yeah, the only person who can bring you to God is the one who is already with him. The, The one who makes a way where there is no way. Jesus Christ, who died and now lives enthroned in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And that's right now. So if you have not put your faith in Christ, stop now. Right this moment and confess your sins before Jesus Christ. And plead the one cause that will bring you forgiveness and access with God. And that is his son who died on the cross for you. Don't wait. You can stop right now. You don't have to listen anymore. Come to Christ. If you've not put your faith in Christ, let me just encourage you to do that right now. Talk to me after the service, but you need nothing more than to come to him. And on that last day, the only thing that you're going to have a good conscience with is with Jesus himself. But there's a second thing that we see here, and that's this, the outcome of God's patience. The outcome of God's patience is this, Jesus proclaimed victory over evil spirits. That's the end of of God's patience. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. He won verses 19 to 20. So, what we have to ask, we have to ask when we read this. I know that some of you are like, I don't like to pay so close attention to the Bible. I like you just to tell me what it means. But we have to ask some hard questions of the text if we want to understand it, and if you want to make sure I'm saying the right stuff. And, and so, you have to ask when you come to verse 19 what does this in which that it begins with point back to? Right? Because it could completely change the way that we understand this text. I think it helps us to see when Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits and what that meant. See, I think this in which points to the spirit raising Christ from the dead. And so the resurrection is in view here. That resurrection that I think just was talked about in the last part of verse 18. I think that's going to make the rest of understanding this verse easier. So the in which is pointing back to the resurrection and the implications of that, right? And so this is what he says in verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, we'll stop there. That's enough. Sounds easy, right? I was talking to uh, somebody else this week, and they were like, man, I'm so glad you're preaching that. Um, I love what Martin Luther says here, verse 19. Uh, This is like one of the harder, you know, verses in the Bible, but he says this, A wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. (laughs) Yeah, I get that. You know, this really is one of the harder verses in the Bible, and it shouldn't cause a church split or anything, okay? So some of you might, like, disagree with me. That's okay. You can still, like, live in harmony with us, but there are, I think, at least a couple of important questions that we should answer. Now, some commentators say they're like six or ten. I think there are two that we just want to rest with today. And the first is this, what does it mean to proclaim? And the second is, uh, who are these these spirits, right, that are in prison? We could unpack this more, but I think those will help us get where we need to go. So the first, this word for proclaim, it's a word that can mean different things. Um, sometimes, uh, usually the New Testament means like proclaim, like preach the gospel so that people are converted, Right? And then other times it can have kind of a general sense in which it just means to declare something like declaring victory. Not necessarily to save anybody, but just like, hey, the victory's been won. So that's, that's sort of part one. But I think if we explore part two, like who are these spirits, it'll help us understand which one of those choices is right. So who are the spirits in prison? Well, people have taken these, uh, these folks in all kinds of ways, but let me just give you a few Um, because I know that people are interested in this kind of stuff. Augustine and others, Augustine, took this to speak of the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ speaking through Noah to humans enslaved to sin during the days that Noah was building the ark. And so some say it's not actually Jesus in the flesh, but his Spirit speaking through Noah uh, prior to Jesus coming and taking on flesh. Now, this is difficult because it seems that verse 19 has the resurrection in view as the context from which Jesus is speaking. And spirits here, uh, what's interesting is it never actually speaks of humans. We'll get to this, but of, of evil non-human spirits in the Bible. So it, it just, it seems unlikely that that's exactly what's going on. Now, others have taken this as the spirit of Christ going between his death and resurrection okay so like there's a little time period between death and resurrection the, the, those three days he's, he's saying uh between that point um it seems that what's going on is that Jesus goes in his spirit to proclaim the gospel to either some dead people or like to say that Jesus is one or maybe give him a second chance at salvation or to declare victory that That's sort of some of the options that people throw out. And I don't think that works for a few reasons. I mean, one is, again, the resurrection is already in view. So it seems to be saying this is something that happens, you know, when Jesus is raised from the dead as opposed to like before he was raised from the dead. So that's one reason. Uh, I think also there's like a bigger kind of reason why that's kind of difficult, this idea of a second chance at salvation. It's because really isn't the point of the book of 1 Peter that we should suffer well and obediently? And wouldn't it kind of diffuse the whole book if you were to come in and say, but then you also have that second chance. Like it just wouldn't really give strength to the kind of argument that he's making that we ought to live faithful lives amidst suffering. And we could go on, um, but it's also this word for prison is never used as a place for dead humans where they are kept, but is used to describe, for instance, Satan, who is being imprisoned in Revelation 20. So the language doesn't seem to be like a prison for uh, humans, but a prison for spiritual beings. Now, the the third one is uh, one that that I go with, and it's the majority opinion. That's safe, right? And the one I I hold to today is this, that Jesus' death and resurrection, he proclaimed victory over the cosmic demonic forces that stand in opposition to Christ. With that very resurrection that he declared, God his one. Uh, Jesus Christ the Son is King. You cannot thwart the purposes of God. It doesn't matter how hard you try. Now this could speak uh, specifically these spirits uh, about the spirits from Genesis 6, 1-4. to 4. That's who a lot point to. You'll remember in uh, Noah's day there were some uh, sons of God that were coming in and procreating it seems with, uh, with sons of, of man uh, and, and they were having children and that kind of thing. Now there's also during Peter's day, resources that he would have been aware of that weren't biblical, but they give us an idea of what some Jews were thinking about. They call them like intertestamental works, like uh, the books of Enoch. And, and in those, they actually describe similar kind of events about them understanding that there were, um, there were some angels or some demons that came and, and procreated with human people and uh, then had children. And that's what made God angry, right? Um, now, the only thing that you have to sort of think about is what do you do with Jesus saying that we are not like angels and we don't procreate with, the, you know, so you don't procreate or there's not marriage in heaven. Um, I don't know what to do with that. So there you are. So whether Jesus proclaims to spirits in general or specifically to those that were in Noah's day, um, like as an isolated group, Jesus seems to proclaim something to them as they are imprisoned. Now, I, I'm not sure, um, When Jesus actually, or or, uh, Jesus, I'm not sure that Jesus actually went uh, down to hell to declare this. Like, I don't think he did. Um, But I'm happy to wrestle through that with you too. Uh, It seems more likely that it was his resurrection and later his ascension, which he's going to pick up on verse 22, that punctuates this proclamation. So, back to our first question. Jesus isn't inviting demons to be saved. That's not, I think, the way that proclaims being used here. I think he's declaring victory over spiritual enemies, just like the demonic forces that tried to undo God's work during Noah's day. He's declaring his victory not just over human enemies, but spiritual enemies as well, like in the days of the flood. So verse 20 exposes why God declares victory. Here's what he says in verse 20. Look there with me again. He says this. because they formally did not obey when god's patience waited in the days of noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through the water now you can imagine how lonely and far from home it must have felt for noah and his family as they were constructing this ark in the middle of the desert with a, a world and even demonic forces standing in opposition to them. I mean, can you see that? Like, I mean, just imagine that like God called you to go build an ark in your front yard here in Phoenix, Arizona, and you're starting to build this ark and your neighbors are like, what are you doing? You're like, I'm getting ready for the flood. And they're like, it's Phoenix. It's a desert. Are you kidding? And imagine this, that not only does it not just rain like, you know, 10 days a year, but that like it, it never has rained before. Like, you would have looked really kind of stupid, right? And so they have to kind of own this sort of ridiculousness that God has thrust on them for the glory of his name. And they're living in this. And I think feeling probably ostracized. I'm sure there were all kinds of jokes about Noah. I'm not going to tell any of them, but I'm sure there were many. And maybe you feel like that at times. You know, you're, you're, you're living are living in a family that makes you feel like strange because you love Jesus and they get even a little angry about it because it's starting to affect their freedom. Or or maybe you're you're just single and and lonely and you're trying to honor God with your dating relationship and in doing that you're almost feeling like you're going to be alone forever just because you're trying to honor Jesus with it and people just don't seem to be into that. Or maybe you're you're married and lonely. It's the same kind of thing, and uh, you're thinking to yourself, "Man, like I just I feel alone in this relationship. I don't feel like God's for me in this relationship." Those are the questions that start striking you. It could be that your your family is against you, or you feel like you're kind of walking on eggshells at work, right? Because you're trying to live for Christ while at the same time, like not getting fired for your faith in Christ. You see all kinds of ways that you just you feel like maybe the pressure is coming in and that evil's winning, and maybe it's that you have grandkids who are wrecking their lives and you're simply, or you're simply depressed and you're crying out in all of these situations. How long, O Lord? I don't know how much longer I can be patient. When are the rain waters coming? When, When are we going to be vindicated? See, I know the light wins in the end, but it feels like the darkness is. Won the day, and God is reminding us that as the flood waters of God's judgment rise, it is His patience that holds back the flood. Did you see that? He said it's His patience. It's the patience of God that held back the flood waters as Noah awaited. And this is salvation in this flood that comes upon Noah in that generation. It is a flood that is salvation through judgment. I mean, just think about this. The same waters. That saved Noah from this wicked generation that probably would have eventually taken his life. Brought down judgment on Noah's enemies. And don't miss this. Peter says it was God's patience that prolonged a season of suffering up to God intervening and saving him. It was God's patience. He thought it was God's absence. It was him not reacting too soon. Because his plans will always be accomplished and never thwarted. Do you think Jesus and his resurrection from the dead punctuates that at all? God always accomplishes his purposes. See, don't mistake God's patience as you suffer as his absence. Or assume that he's unable or unwilling to deliver you. He is always working things together for our ultimate good and his glory. And that means all things. All things. Bad things, good things, hard things. Beautiful things, things like sickness and death, prosperity and poverty, joy and suffering, all things for our good and for his glory. Now, catch where Peter goes from here, though. You might think this is a weird turn. He jumps to baptism. Did you see that? Third, he he jumps to baptism. See, baptism declares that we believe Jesus is our victorious cosmic king. We see this in verses 21 to 22. Uh, look there with me at what he says in verse 21. He says, Baptism, which corresponds to this being Noah and what we just talked about, salvation through judgment, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, i got a couple of questions or a couple of things we want to cover here. The first is this What is baptism? Now, that word for corresponds, again, um, is actually a word in the Greek that, that is um, the equivalent of antitype. Now, I know that's a big word. But antitype, uh, it, it's just a word that basically means, like, hey, this is the thing that a type pointed towards. So, you have got a type that happens, but it's sort of getting you ready for an antitype, something that's coming later. And he's saying that what happened in Noah's day was preparing us for something greater, which is Jesus. Now, the relationship between God's salvation through judgment during Noah's flood is a type of an anticipated Christian baptism. That's what he's saying here. Now, notice, what he's, notice he says uh, something that is probably caught your attention, that baptism now saves you. See, this verse is why some people believe in baptismal regeneration. It's that idea that the water mystically saves you in some way. I think that this misses the point here. I, don't, I think that it's clear that that's not what's happening, especially when you look at the whole Bible and what it says about baptism. But even in this text, I think it's clear that's not what he's talking about. Uh, so what does he mean by baptism now saves you? Well, I think that Dr. Carson gets it right when he calls this a metonymy. It's a, it's a word uh, that essentially means, I know it's a big word, but metonymy is just where you have a part that represents the whole, Right? So, you'll remember that back in Billy Sunday's day, he was an evangelist, and he had this problem when he was going out and preaching in fields, he would would pitch his tent, and if it was wet and he pitched his tent, everybody would, like, slip down and fall, and it would get muddy and a wreck. And if, on the other hand, it was dry and people were to start walking down the aisle, it would just get super dusty and uncomfortable and that kind of thing, and so he learned to, like, start lining it with sawdust, and when he did that, it sort of fixed both problems, And so for a while, when people would talk about coming to Christ, they would say, so when did you hit the dusty trail, right? And what he meant was not that the dusty trail saved you or the sawdust saved you, but that that experience sort of encompassed what it meant to put your faith in Jesus, to get baptized, to become a Christian. It was a picture of conversion. And that is essentially, I believe, the same kind of thing that's going on with baptism. See, first century Christians that Peter would would have been speaking to, could not have imagined a Christian who was not baptized. Like Jesus was raised from the dead, and he declared with all authority that was given to him, to his disciples, that you need to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. And so they said, well, I mean, that's like, I guess, where we start, right? I mean, Jesus was raised from the dead, declares all authority over heaven and earth, and we're like, okay, what do we do? And he says, you go baptize people. So that's what Christians do. And I believe that's the way that they would have understood Baptism. Now, as you see this, you you notice here that that Peter says that this baptism is not as a removal of dirt from the body, as in like spiritual purification, like some other religions. But instead, he said, "Is it is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to Him." Now, I I love this image. The the lamb who was slain to bring us to God, right, through his death, in verse 18, was raised from the dead. And this lamb who was slain to bring us to God emerged from the grave as the cosmic, lion-like battle lamb who roared into creation, declaring his absolute victory and unrivaled authority. That's what happens when Christ dies and is raised from the dead. He says, I am not weak, though I suffered." I am actually powerful above all earthly powers and demonic forces. There is none like me. So if you're a beleaguered Christian wondering if the suffering Jesus is strong enough to get you to God, Peter says, don't forget that we serve a victorious king who already reigns right now with power, with authority. It is unrivaled. Now, I take this to mean that at baptism, a believer is actually asking God to cleanse their conscience and forgive their sins based on Jesus' death and resurrection, In the same way, the same water that brought both death and life, judgment and salvation in Noah's day, baptism today pictures a death to our old man and a newness of life with Christ as our king. Do do you see it? It it is a picture of a a death, a judgment that takes place. God's justice is done, but we also see salvation and our being raised to newness of life. Now catch this. This is why we, we baptize confessing believers we don't baptize babies because babies they don't make an appeal to God they don't ask for good consciences see Paul says in Romans ten nine, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved and that is how we find what it means to be a believer and to be converted but we also don't believe that baptism saves you just to be clear like the Catholic Church the Church of Christ Nacho Libre we don't believe that we believe that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. We don't get baptized to get saved. We get baptized because we're saved. But if we are saved, we will get baptized. And with all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus says that we as Christians are to make disciples baptizing the name in the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now notice that baptize here is an appeal to a good conscience. That good conscience is the control center of what tells you what is right and wrong. It's like, it reminds me of Will Robinson from Lost in Space. Do you remember that? Have y'all seen that? It's like updated shows, so even some of the kids will know what I'm talking about. I used to watch reruns in black and white. But you remember he has Robot, that's the robot's name is Robot. And, and Robot, whenever he senses that... There's any kind of danger for Will Robinson, he'll start just screaming out, danger, Will Robinson, danger, Will Robinson, over and over again until he gets himself out of danger. Now, what's fascinating is that's really similar to the way that our consciences ought to work. If they're not seared through sin or hardened towards God, they ought to tell us about when we are in danger. Now, here's my concern is there is a sense in which you can sear that conscience to the point to which the robot turns off, where you no longer sense that you are in danger and you feel safety when you are not. And that's not a good place to be, spiritually or otherwise. But there's another sense here in which I believe Peter is reminding them of what ought to encourage their consciences to know that they are in a good place and right before God. Not just at salvation, but for the rest of their lives. Notice that he doesn't point them to some good decision they made or how special they are. He points them to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, if you want a good conscience before God, it shouldn't rest in anything in you, but in the Son. And let me just remind you of where he is. He lives. And oh, by the way, not only does he live, do you remember that he also wasn't just raised, but he was raised again? So that he ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father? above all earthly powers, all demonic forces. There is none like him. That's the one who you need to trust your conscience with. Do you know him? Do you trust him? And if you don't trust him today, there is nothing more that you need to be safe with God than his son, Jesus Christ. He is the only way. So if Jesus lives, the cross achieved satisfying God's wrath once for all for you and me and solidified our futures. Our patience is needs to reflect God's patience when we suffer. But our faith union with Him means that He's carrying us all the way home to God. If we make it, it's because of who Jesus is. Now, how do we bolster that patience really quickly? Let me give you some ways. Uh, The first is that we meditate on God's Word. I say that a lot because God's Word is breathing life into us. It shapes and transforms us. We need it, and we need the reminder to look to God's Word. We meditate on God's Word, and the reality that Jesus is enthroned in heaven already as our victorious King. Our victorious King is able. Are you hearing me? He is able to bring us home. Now, by way of analogy, maybe this will help you. Uh, sometimes I'll go to my little guy Jack. He's seven, and I'll say, "Hey, man, come on, flex, flex that muscle. Let me see that. I want to see what you got there." And I'm like, "Oh, man, that's puny. Is that all you got?" And he's like. He strains harder. And he's just trying to show me. I'm like, I don't know if you can do this job if your muscles aren't bigger than that. And then he gives it everything, right? I'm like, whoa, that was great. I think you can do it. I think that's kind of a little bit of what God's doing for us here, right? Like maybe you're scared today that Jesus isn't enough, that you're too sinful, or that maybe uh, the, the suffering in your life means that he has abandoned you. And you're thinking, I don't know if Jesus is enough, if he is able to bring me home to God. And I want you to know that the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of the Father, declares, I have flexed my muscles, I am able. I am strong enough, I am able enough to do exactly what I have promised. I never, I never write checks with my mouth that my hands cannot cash, right? That's our God. But notice also that we need to pray for Christ to come quickly. We need to pray for Christ to come quickly. Now this might sound funny. We're looking to be patient and yet we're eager right? How, how can we be eager and impatient for the return of Christ and yet patient in this life? Well, see, I, I believe, even though it doesn't say it here explicitly, I believe if you really understand just how good Christ is and long to be with the Father, it will make you a more patient person in this life. So you'll understand that this world is not your home. You won't hold on to your possessions as, as much. You'll understand that people aren't just what they are, but what they shall be. You'll begin to see the world with new eyes, understanding that this, this is going to change. God is coming back to set things right. Uh, I've told you before about a friend um, who said she wasn't ready for Christ to come because she had things to do. And I think that we all, at times in our lives, could resonate with that. Like, life is good. Like, family's good. Hopefully you've had those kinds of experiences. And you're like, I'd be okay if Jesus just waited a little longer. But I also believe that it misses the point that our home is with God and that we ought to long for that place above all else. And sometimes it's suffering that reminds us of that. See, I think impatience for Christ's return on the last day will make us more patient today. That desire helps us understand that this world's goods and losses are not what we've ultimately been made for and the best is yet to come. Not only that, a third thing is that we need to be patient with impatient people if we want to learn to be patient. Did y'all catch that? We need to be patient with impatient people if we want to learn to be patient. See, that that image is God, doesn't it? How he was patient with us while we were yet rebellious and impatient. And I think the humility to do that only comes from seeing the unparalleled greatness of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is bigger in our eyes, you will be smaller and more humble, more patient. Your nose will grow. Not physically like Pinocchio or something, but, but spiritually. You get it. Are you impatient on others, though, because you are impatient with God? Are you patient with other believers with the confidence that Jesus really will finish the work that he began in them? Are you patient with them in sanctification, or are you impatient? Uh, Don't you want others to be patient with you in the way that God is? I do. And that also works, I believe, in in marriage with your spouse. Are you you eager for them today? Must they be what they need to become today? Or are you going to be patient with them and God working in them? what about with your kids? Anybody blow up with their kids today? Like, me? Just trying to get them ready. Jack's like, look at my hair. It's a, you got to get your clothes on. We're late. But, Dad, watch this, you know. And in that moment, I was just thinking, like, hey, you. And I go, God's trying to teach me patience right before I preach on patience. <laughs> well done, God. It's good in evangelism and the way that you love others. Are you patient with your non-Christian friends? Are you patient with them? Are you willing to love them when it's hard? Are you willing to spend lots of time helping them see Jesus and even sacrifice money to show kindness, that they might see the goodness of God? And then finally, for meditate on Christ's death, which the resurrection proclaims. Uh, We need to be done, but this is what Spurgeon says. One thing I know, Christ thinks more of our sins than he does our righteousness. For he gave himself for our sins. I never heard that he gave himself for our righteousness. No soul ever ate a morsel more dainty than this one substitution. Substitutionary atonement. I do think that this is the grandest truth in heaven and earth. Jesus Christ, the just one, died for the unjust. That he might bring us to God. It is meat meat to my soul. I can feed on it every day and all the day. Isn't that good? Let's feast on Christ. Let's pray.